just figuring it out now. It's beautiful. I'm very grateful that in this season in our life as a church, um, we've had this uh, concerted time on the very first book of the Bible. In my mind, I think it's more like uh, you have to do arithmetic before you get to geometry, and you have to do geometry before you get to calculus. And the reality that uh, we have had this time to look at the very first principles, to understand Genesis, and how really the rest of the Word of God is nothing more than explaining what is here. Um, we have uh, the end, uh, where Jacob, uh, as the final patriarch, uh, has died. Uh, he particularly has uh, placed a vow or an oath upon his sons uh, to not let him die uh, in the land where he is, which is in Egypt, but to take him and translate him over, even after his death, into another land, the promised land up north, the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to him and his fathers and his father's father. Picking up in uh, verse 9, you find uh, the reality of them ascending or going up from Egypt to this promised land. And it says this, a caravan of them as uh, a funeral procession. And there went up with him, that is Joseph, both uh, chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons, here's the phrase, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah in the east of Monre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers, with his brothers, and all who had gone up with them to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servant, servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. 
Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And the end of the book follows. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And you were to think, perhaps, the way our stories should go, unlike biblical stories at times, is, that was a little anticlimactic. <laughs> it's like, okay, so, like, does anyone, you know, uh, get the girl, uh, slay, you know, win, win, win something? Uh, where's, the, where's the resolution? Where's the, you know, where, where's the enemy that's destroyed? Where's um, the romance that's supposed to happen? Like, our stories are typically supposed to end with some type of, like, wow, that's a wonderful, tie that loose end knot to uh, the narrative. And, and, of course, that is exactly what did not happen. This is the first book, after all. But it really is a conclusion. To recap, we understand Joseph. Joseph was taken by his brothers. It's been many years since he first revealed himself to his brothers. And now their father is dead and they doubt. Was he just tolerating us for the sake of our father? Now that our father has died... Surely Joseph truly does. I mean, we did try to kill him and send him into slavery. He has to hate us. He's going to fall upon us. We're told that Jacob drew up his feet and he breathed his last. And what happened was a royal procession. Chariots and horses traveled all the way up from Egypt to the north into the promised land of modern day Israel. Seventy days of grieving. In Egyptian culture, that is what you grieved for a king. Joseph is given all this dignity to his father Jacob in his last dying will and testament. But we find that all of this was intended for a purpose. Everything that happened in Joseph's life was intended for us to see this image This image that will reverberate through the rest of Scripture. As all the images of Genesis will reverberate through the rest of Scripture and find locus or singularity in the Lord Jesus Christ. In which we know now that it has to be through a servant who saves. It was all for that. It was all for that purpose. And at the very end that image is appended to by the concept of forgiveness. A servant who saves through forgiveness. Pure, unmitigated, even tearfully flooded pardon. 
pardon for all his enemies and his brothers. This is what we've said is the crossroads of forgiveness. That there is two aspects to forgiveness. There is a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect. We see that clearly as we are called to forgive one another. We all have sinned against one another in significant ways. And just so we can all say the other opposite is we all have received sins from one another in very grievous ways. So we are to forgive one another, which we saw mostly last week. This week particularly, we're looking at this concept of the vertical part of forgiveness. Yes, God forgives us, but there is a tendency, a temptation for us to consider, and I don't mean to say this irreverently, forgiving God. I don't mean that in a blasphemous way. Of course, you can't forgive God. He's perfect and righteous. There is no way he would ever be in a position to need anything from us, especially our pardon. But there is a reality that you and I would all know fairly well in which you have suffered in this life. You will suffer, particularly even at the hands of other sinful men. And the reality behind all this now as we see the curtain pulled back, particularly on Joseph's life, is that God was in it. Because when you suffer and you look to the heavens and then you make the connection between your suffering and his sovereignty, there is a moment in which you consider, Lord, Why is this upon me? For you are God who does all and controls all. Why have you allowed this in my life? The way we're supposed to forgive one another, as we said, is Jesus' most pivotal prayer where he gives us in Matthew 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do you see the connection? Forgive us our debts vertically as we forgive one another horizontally. That connection in the cross is pivotal throughout Scripture and typified most clearly here with Joseph and his brothers. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another horizontally as God in Christ has forgiven you vertically. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another. And if any one of you has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive one another. Colossians 3. The vertical reality of your forgiveness in Christ and the horizontal reality of freely dispensing forgiveness at a moment's notice, at the time in which any time it would be received. Forgiveness is likened much to a Christmas gift. You can wrap it up. You can put a bow on it. Someone has to repent. They actually have to want to be forgiven. They have to unwrap the gift and it's there. You're forgiven. You can't force people to be forgiven. But your position, my responsibility, our responsibility is to have that gift wrapped in Christ. That at any moment you will distribute forgiveness to anyone who wants to undo the wrapping. 
anyone who wants to repent and find reconciliation. The crossroads of all this is like a train we've mentioned. You have the reality in which you're driving down the road and every once in a while you cross railroad tracks and a very few times, especially now, you never see trains. But it can't happen. You could be crossing a railroad track and a train is actually coming across as well. And we praise God for warning bells and guardrails. Warning bells and guardrails. Because a train is very, very unforgiving. Here it is. Jesus' warning once more. The warning bells, the guardrails of crossing the tracks of God's forgiveness inappropriately. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father vertically will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. You will be up against the train of God's wrath. You will not be forgiven. Your little car will stand no chance. The guardrails are, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Hold back, and he will hold back. So the brothers, of course, thinking like you and I normally would, apart from knowing anything of the Lord Jesus Christ, have to interpret Joseph as not being sincere. There is no way he could truly forgive us like that. And so they doubt that that was a genuine, true forgiveness. But here we find, as the story unfolds, three aspects that show that this is real. That Joseph has actually forgiven them. The three are, there's a confession with contrition and restitution, and then forgiveness that results in real reconciliation. That is, a confession, contrition, and real forgiveness. They come to him, particularly with this clear confession. Please forgive the trespasses, the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did you evil. Trespasses, the crimes or the sins and evil. Three words particularly. There's only around four words in the Bible that are used to describe sin. Three of them are in this one confession. Do you see how this works? The confession. It is, you know what, I made a little bit of a mistake. No, that's not a confession. You know what? I know I need to forgive, so I'm going to say something half-heartedly. No. Their confession is almost exhausting the biblical vocabulary for their depravity. They really are sorry. What they did was wickedness, evil, sin, transgression, crime. All the translations of these words they're using. That is the basis of really being forgiven. There's no way you can come to Christ apart from that. You can't come to Christ and be like, listen, I need just a little help. You come to Christ saying, everything you've said about me is true. You've confessed. You've repeated God's words back to himself. And then there's true contrition. With an offer of restitution, we have no idea of that second aspect in our American Christian culture. They say, the brothers came and they fell down before him and just simply said, we are your servants. We are your slaves. See, 
in God's law. No, not our law, or even our civil law, or even our personal conventional law of social interactions. In God's law, there can only be two things to happen. A single restitution or a double retribution. That is, when you read through, you find these examples. If a man is borrowing another man's ox, and you're like, yes, pay attention, that's relevant for me. If a man's borrowing another man's ox, it says, and the ox dies by accident, the law says you need to restore that ox to the man. Get another one. Buy from yours to give to him. To maintain justice, perfect balance. The ox was given, it was taken. So it's a one for one. It's a single restitution. You didn't intend harm. It just happened. So give him back an ox. If you broke someone's car while you're borrowing it, get it fixed. That's restitution. But if you went to steal someone's animal, well, that's a double retribution, you see. If you are caught stealing an animal, not only do you have to return back the value of that animal to the person, but then you have to suffer the loss as though you were stolen from. A double reciprocal retribution. It's a punishment. You actually don't maintain the balance. You actually lose what you intended to steal. Because God has always been interested in the heart. Yes, even in the Old Testament. It was the intentions. It was the consideration of the matter that God cares about. It was not the fact that the animal was lost. It was the fact that you intended to take that man's animal. Therefore, perfect justice is therefore your intentions fall back upon your own head and you lose an animal. You just don't get by neutral. That's justice. Now they come and confess. Without being caught at least. And say, we intended to sell you into slavery. We are your slaves. That's true, actual, real contrition. I'm not saying, boy, I hope I can rely on God's grace. No, I am so broken by my sin. In any way possible, I want to do anything within my power to make it right. That concept's far missed in the way we should relate to one another. Forgiveness follows, and we always like to divide. We divide contrition with restitution, and we always like to divide forgiveness with reconciliation. Yeah, you're forgiven, now leave me alone. Of course, it's easier that way. And praise God, the gospel is not that way. You're forgiven, now be gone with you. I don't like your face, and you smell weird. <laughs> That's not how it works. I promise you we will smell. If we were in heaven, flesh and blood, Jesus Christ says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We are a repulse to him. If we were to ascend into Zion, we would turn to smoke. We smell. Our righteousness, our best things we can offer into the celestial throne of God. His filthy rags. Yes, he's forgiven you and he's tolerated your stench. He's reconciled with you. Everything about you that stinks and he smells it more vividly than all of us. And he hugs you and loves you and took on flesh for you. Do you see? We cannot divide forgiveness from reconciliation. And neither does Joseph. He says, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me when you did that to me when I was a small boy. But God, he meant it for good. To bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Forgiveness. Immediately following his reconciliation. Do not fear. I will provide for you. In the Hebrew, the eye is vivid. It's, a, it's an intensive to say, no, no, no. The word is I. I'm going to stand on that word I right now in this sermon to make us all uncomfortable. I will provide for you. I will not distribute you to the administrative staff of Pharaoh so that you will get your grain every month. I, your brother, whom you tried to kill, I will provide for you. From my resource and my house, I will not let you go. I will not put you into the corners of the Egyptian kingdom and say that you're still my brothers and we'll write Christmas cards once a year. I will provide for you and your little ones. I will be with you. I will reconcile with you. All that predicated on the fact that he's weeping. That they would even think that he would hate them. He's grieved by the fact. This crossroads of forgiveness. They come because Joseph is able to see what we all have to see. The power of horizontal forgiveness is in the horizon. The horizon of the cross. That is the looking up to the hill and seeing the silhouette, the figure of the cross. That horizontal horizon kind of view will give you perspective in which to deal with people down here. You have to see up so you can deal with people down below. His words particularly. You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. He could see it there so he could deal with it down here. If you can't see that second part, if you can't see the verticalness of it all, there is no power to forgive. There is no ability. You have no perspective. You have no love because you've never been loved. How can you give what you don't have if the Holy Spirit has not poured out the love of God upon your heart? But see, Joseph is able to see God was in this. I can deal with what you did to me. I can deal with it. I have resource for it. How does he deal with it? Two particular ways that we are called to is leaving room for the wrath of God and leaving room for the plan of God. We're not meant to micromanage our lives. Which you would say that's for some of us a challenge. For me, I tend to be a big picture guy. So, could be also a downfall. Uh, I don't like details. Uh, never did. Um, but the big picture, the idea is leave room. He says, who Am I in the place of God? Do you see Joseph's posture? Leave room. Leave room for the wrath of God. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourself. That's God's job. Don't worry about it. Never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing you will keep burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see? It's exactly what Joseph is doing. Am I in the place of God? Fine. You did what you had to do, but I will only look for the good. Leave room for the plan of God. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do you realize that the evil, the heartache, the trial, the torment, the slavery, the sorrow, everything you will ever experience in this life comes to you potentially from the hands of sinful people. And at the exact same time, the hands of a holy God. Put that together. Everything. Spurgeon once said, We can't be like dogs, you see. If a dog is hit with a stick, it will look to the stick and try to bite it and snap at it. Never looking a little bit farther to see the hand holding it. Do you see that all the trials in your life, they've come from the hand of God? Letting that rest upon your mind gives you the place to think, can I trust him? Can I love him? I can forgive men of their sins. What is God doing to me? Why does he allow this kind of suffering in the world? All the reality is in Joseph's life is he is able to see that the right. To see that through the gospel. You meant it all for evil. God meant it all for good. These two concurrent things that we should have the reason to forgive men because God has considered their sins and the reason to trust God because God has considered their sins for our good. Only he is wise enough to handle that. My daughter is not allowed to cut with the knives. She doesn't know the consequences of that knife. It's too sharp for her. The fore, her foreknowledge, her providential insight. You ever think about that for a toddler? That would be a wonderful toddler book. Toddlers and Providential Insight. Her providence is, is, is foresight. Provide. If you have fo- the, 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 the word actually means foresight. It comes then follows provide. If you have foresight, you can provide. Providence. Small child picking up a very sharp knife. There's no providential wisdom there. But that does not mean God can pick up the knife. God can use very sharp and dangerous and what we would say in a humanly perspective, evil things. Natural evils, you know, storms and moral evils from the brothers. Any evil that happens in this life, it is all evil for us who are doing it by our intention of the evil inclinations of our heart. But God can use those very same instruments for life, for good. There is a murderer and there is a surgeon. They both use blades. You see, one has wisdom. Wisdom. This is the gospel. 
But gospel is this particular thing that God has promised good news to you and I. That God in Christ is for you and also more particularly for your good. The mental turmoil, bodily breakdown, financial loss, the death of your family and loved ones and even yourself. All wrapped up into Ephesians 1.11 which says that all things work according to his purpose. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's all wrapped up in there and tied tight with a bow to say, this is the gospel. That in all the mystery and the question marks of life, all the reasons as to why God has allowed this into your life, you know one thing, and this promise is sure as God is a man and I cannot lie, is that it will be for your good in Christ. In Christ. That's the only place it makes sense. That's the only place blessings fall. The gospel is this one great thing, to trust in this reality. Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, believed God and it was considered to him righteousness. Do you realize that's the same word that Joseph just used? You, you considered it for evil for me. God considered it for good for me. The, all the gospel is, is that, God's consideration. You look at something with evil intent and it's evil. God looks at the same thing with holy intent and it's good. Abraham believed God's promises that even though he was cast out of the land, even though he will die and return to the dust, God has promised blessings upon his life. I will give you a land. I will give you a nation. I will give you a name and people. And he just said, okay, I, I believe you. He's like, you're righteous. You translate it into the realm of light. Everything that could be dark and twisted and wrong is now made a right and light and straight. You are righteous. Why? Hashav, the Hebrew, there says he cons God considered him righteous. Just like everything the brothers did. To hurt Joseph, God said, I I'm going to consider that good. Why? He knows the end from the beginning. Throw him in a pit. Do what you want. Send him to Egypt. It doesn't matter. God is going to bring life. That's the gospel. Do anything you want. As evil and as sinister and as twisted as your heart can have. God will make good. In many ways, it's very similar to an experience that you might have had Especially this time of the year, if you're interested in trying to exercise that first month out of the year. The uh, New Year's resolution. Remember being on uh, the track team in high school and going down to the practice field behind the school. And it wasn't like the nice, you know, this is like the real track meet and everything's like really nice. It was just a, uh, a dirt uh, track. Um, there were trees around it. And we would go and uh, I would, you know, measure, because there's no lines, right? Like on a normal track. It's just dirt. And so you kind of use these outside markers, um, per se, a tree or something just to say, hey, we're going to start here and just run. Um, it was training, it was practice. It didn't really matter exactly your times because uh, it's all conditioning preseason. Um, and so... There's a lot of circles. From one perspective, you would say, why are you running in circles? 
Nothing's changing. You run past the same tree again, and the same tree again, and the same tree again. What are you accomplishing? And we all know the evident fact is, well, nothing in the track itself. I'm maturing my body, which would, wouldn't be bad to try that uh, nowadays. But I'm making my body in shape. I'm, I'm changing, you see. The tree hasn't changed. The track hasn't changed. I'm just running in circles. But I'm changing. You have to see the beauty of this. You have to see how we end. The reality that we are ending where we began. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. How did we start this race? All the trees of the garden are good for food, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. We did. We wanted to know. We wanted to be like God. We wanted to have the knowledge, the ability with the finest knife to cut the atom, to say what is good and what is evil, how I would want to know it, how I would perceive it, how I would lay my conscience upon it. And Joseph is backed up and said, no, no. It is how God considers the matter. Joseph is trusting in the Lord. He's hearing the gospel and he says, no. This knowledge of good and evil, it has opened up a massive problem in this world. And all I know is this. That you all are wicked and God is good. We went back to the tree. But not the same way. We're 50 chapters more mature. The last stretch of the lap. The legs are stronger. The lungs are bigger. And Joseph's able to say one thing. I don't know about that tree. I know we weren't supposed to have it. But I know one thing. Everything that is evil... And everything that is good is bifurcated by who God is and who we are. And the irony of it all is the partial prophecy is true. We ate of that tree and now Joseph actually is a little bit discerning the difference between good and evil. Do you understand? That is the whole gospel. That is everything. That is why when we read in Revelation that all creation will come and worship him who is worthy. For only he can open that scroll. For only he can take hold of that tree. For only he knows the beginning from the end. The reality that all of them, all the sons were looking for life. And they wanted to go into that land. Two points to bring this to an end. One is this. Jacob says to his sons, I put a vow upon you. Do not let me stay in Egypt. Do not let me stay here when I die. Take me into that other place. So we began by what? 
God makes man out of dust. Adama, he names him Adam. In the garden perfectly. He takes of the tree from dust you are to dust you return. Eve is named mother of the living. The problem is all of her children keep dying. Here is Jacob, an old man, puts his feet up and dies to turn to dust. But he says one thing. I'm turning to dust now, as we all do. But I want to be a particular kind of dust. I don't want to be the dust down here in Egypt. I want to be dusty in Canaan. I want, I want you to put my body in the land of the living. I want you to put me back where I will resurrect again. Back to the tree in Acts 2. Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. We're back to the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat that. Joseph, you intended evil for me. God intended good. Jesus, you crucified him by the hands of sinful men. But God raised him up to save the whole world. All pivoting on this fact that it is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He could not be loosened by death. By the pains of death could not hold him. That there is forgiveness, that it is carried away on the cross, and also life, that is reconciliation and resurrection. That is, it says in the Hebrew particularly, that they carried Jacob up, and then the word in English is forgive. They come to him, the brothers, and say, now forgive us of our sins. You miss it. The same word is carry. Carry us up. Carry the dead father up to the promised land and also carry our sins away. The English translates it forgive. But it's the same word. Carry our father to the promised land. Carry our sins away. Reconciliation. Resurrection. Put my bones in the land of the living. Carry me there. Carry my sins away that I might live. Do you realize any bones of contention that we have with one another cannot be construed out of the context of Joseph's bones in Canaan? Reconciliation, resurrection. If you can't be reconciled here, How could you be resurrected together forever? Joseph forgives all his brothers so that his brothers would take his bones, that he would be gathered to his brothers to be resurrected. There is no other way. We have to forgive, for we have been forgiven. Our forgiveness is in that life, all in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, life and death. 
Dear Father God, we pray that you would pass this truth upon that we have learned. We have learned that it is not only this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that this suffering servant Joseph-like was put upon that tree to give us a knowledge of good and evil. Lord, we know that our reconciliation with you is the resurrection of our bodies in a new heavens and new earth. And Lord, we know that our reconciliation with one another to truly forgive and love by the power of the Holy Spirit is that same power that will bring back our bones and Joseph's bones all together on that great day in which you will be properly praised and glorified. Lord, prepare us for that. Let us learn that now as we live and love with one another under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand if you're